Welcome to the Dr. Raj podcast with Dr. Raj Dasgupta, a show all about educating patients, students, and aspiring doctors about better patient care. Dr. Raj is a quadruple board certified physician and associate professor at the University of Southern California. He was a co-host of the TNT series, Chasing the Cure with Ann Curry, as well as a regular on the TV show, The Doctors. And now, here's our show. Hi, and welcome to the Dr. Raj Show. And of course, the Dr. Raj Show is not only about how much geeky medical knowledge do you have, but it's about being yourself. It's just about being a nice person. It's about talking about wellness and health and people who can influence others to just be a better person, being a better you every day. And today, I always get to brag that because it is the Dr. Raj show, I could bring my friends and really cool colleagues that I know are just awesome. And I played that card again. It's kind of like the theme of me, you know? And so we have a amazing cardiothoracic interventionalist radiologist who is super good friend of mine. It's Dr. Lynn. And before we do introductions, you know, the routine, everyone got to read her bio. So Dr. Lynn is an assistant professor of clinical radiology at the Keck School of Medicine of USC. Go Trojans. Um, (laughs) She is a director of the USC lung cancer screening program and the associate uh, section chief of cardiothoracic imaging. She works at Keck Hospital of USC, LA County Hospital of USC, and Norris Cancer Center of USC. Dr. Lynn grew up in Rochester, Minnesota, then Scottsdale, Arizona, and she earned her BA magnum cum laude, such a bragger, <laughs> I swear, from Bowdoin College, which I got to tell you is a really super hard college to get into. It goes under the radar. Uh, her medical degree from Jefferson Medical College in uh, Philadelphia and completed her diagnostic radiology residency in 213 at Kaiser Permanente Los Angeles and completed her fellowship in cardiothoracic imaging and intervention at USC in 214. She then joined the USC faculty department of radiology. Her clinical and research interests include lung cancer screening, pulmonary infections, and vascular imaging. In addition to interpreting chest x-ray, CTs, and MRIs, she performs thoracic interventions, including percutaneous CT-guided biopsies. Teaching is one of her passions, and she teaches cardiothoracic fellows, radiology residents, medical students in both the clinical and lecture settings. Dr. Lin has presented multiple lectures, educational exhibits, posters at multiple national meetings, and is the member of the Society of Thoracic Radiology, Radiological Society of North America, American, oh, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Rotengen, did I say that right? Uh, Rankin Ray. Oh my God, oh my God, everyone's all embarrassed, I I screwed that one up, (laughs) Rankin Ray Society, and the American Medical Women's Association. She has a passion for mentoring women physicians and is currently starting a women's leadership in medicine group within the USC Department of Radiology. And with that said, Dr. Lynn, how are you? Dr. Raj, thanks for having me. That was great. I know, I mean, I, you know, because you're my friend. I just know you're successful, but you don't realize until you read the, uh, the CV. I'm like, wow. I don't give her enough credit sometimes. You know? <laughs> Some surprises in there. <laughs> so you know how this is going to be. I think that 
for the first half, I got some get to know you questions. I know you, I think, but I want my, my listeners to get to know you. So are you, are you ready for some, uh, some personal questions? Yeah, that's great. I'm excited. So it does seem when you're, you're all over the place, you're in all over America. I mean, are you, are you part of the witness protection program or something? <laughs> you know? Yeah. When you, when, when you're reading that, I, I got that same feeling. Well, I've lived a lot of places and <laughs> how it started is my father is actually a radiologist as well, a chest radiologist. Oh. And he did his training and worked at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. So that's why um, ah. I was born in Minnesota. And then in 1987, they built um, a Mayo Clinic in Scottsdale, Arizona. So ah. then my parents decided they wanted to leave the Minnesota tundra and retire <laughs> in some place <laughs> a bit warmer. So that's how we ended up um, in Scottsdale, Arizona. So how... Old were you when you left when you left Minnesota? How old were you? I was ten. I was ten. So I still, you know, I, I liked the snow and playing in the snow. Yeah. You know, I wasn't old enough. I had to worry about driving in it or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I really loved living in Minnesota, but then going to Arizona was just so great. I mean, there were swimming pools everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, it it was great. So I, I feel lucky that I was able to live in both places. You know, living in the Midwest, the people are so great. So I'm glad I got that good base. And then I'm um, going to Arizona, you know, it's a little bit more diverse, a larger city. So that was great too. So, so I'm glad I got to live um, in, in both places. So uh, no, I, I've been to Minnesota for a conference or two, <laughs> you know, and where you live, was it close to Bloomington? Or yes. No? Yeah. Pretty it close. Was? Yeah. All right. So reason why I'm asking, because, you know, people in Minnesota don't be mad at me, but my, the, the thing I remember the most about going there is the Mall of America. Have yep. you the Mall of America? Oh yeah, you just go in circles and circles and circles and many I, floors. I, did you get lost? Did you get lost in the Mall of America? <laughs> I loved it. I mean, I was a kid when I was there, but yeah, you could definitely easily get lost. Yeah, I'm, I'm scared to bring my kids there, you know, because <laughs> if they get lost, I, I may never find them. There's a map just to navigate through this mall. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm, yep. <laughs> So from there, I, you know, it sounds like, you know, Arizona, which is like you went from ice skating to like swimming pool in hot weather. So <laughs> did how long did you live in Arizona for? So I moved there in fourth grade and I finished high school there. And then okay. when I was looking at colleges, I have an older brother and sister who, who are also physicians and they um, are about seven and eight years older than me. And they went to the small liberal arts college here, Pomona College here. Okay, in, I know what that uh, is, yeah. So I would visit them there as a kid and I fell yeah. in love with the size and the type of school, you know, small liberal arts and it was beautiful and um, I got to meet the students, um, you know, some of their friends and I just loved it. So when it was my turn to look for colleges, I knew I wanted something like that, a small liberal arts college. My high school in Arizona was a large public school of about 2,500 okay. kids. Um, so I had done the big school experience and I wanted to check out a smaller college and now that you know no, I had lived in the Midwest <laughs> and also the West Coast. So I wanted to check out the East Coast. So, Why I mean, not? I'm a little embarrassed to, to um, say this, but really how I based my college search was U.S. News and World Report. I'm not kidding. <laughs> I looked at the top 10 liberal arts schools that were on the East Coast and applied to all of them. And I ended up at Bowdoin College in Brunswick, Maine. And wow, I am so glad I did. I loved it. What a great experience. I had never been to the East coast before 
And, um, you know, a lot of the students at Bowdoin are from Boston. So I had a lot of friends yeah. from Boston. So I got to go to that city a lot, Boston, Rhode Island, Vermont, New Hampshire, Connecticut. So I, then I got to uh, explore that part of the nation. And the school was great. And you're right, out here, a lot of people haven't heard um, of it, I think, because no. it's a small school. But it is, you know, a good school, like you say. <laughs> and people on the East Coast know it. And I really, um, yeah, encourage people um, to check it, check it out and at least check out Maine. I mean, it was such a great place to live. There was snow, of course, but we were right by the ocean. So um, it wasn't too cold. And then I got to work there a few summers and summers in Maine cannot be beat. Now, okay, I'll give you that. So let me, let me, let's talk about college for a sec. But first mm -hmm. off, yes, I mean, very, very prestigious. Now, did you say thank you to your, to your parents? Because I, I saw the tuition for, for this college. And, uh, you know, honestly, yeah. Yeah, I mean, we don't want to. Your dad's a radiologist. So you be going there, uh, I probably should say we are still paying off those, <laughs> those loans. It, Dad. You are correct, and uh, <laughs> and I'm sure that, you know not to date ourselves, but I'm sure the tuition has definitely gone way up since I was there, also. But you're right, definitely lucky. Yes. But um, so let me ask you this. I mean, I see you as an amazing doctor. Um, why did you go to a liberal arts college? And for my listeners who are, you know, maybe um, in college right now, uh, mm -hmm. kind of wondering what major they should be, why liberal arts? Why not dorky biology like I did, like all the other good Indian people like me did? Why didn't you yep. do that? Yeah, excellent yeah. question. Well, I, you know, honestly, my, so my father's a doctor, like I said, my mom was a nurse and my older two siblings were doctors. So it was sort of in the back of my mind, but I didn't know when I was applying to college, I didn't know for sure that I wanted to be a doctor at that time. You know, I, I was open mm -hmm. to a lot of different things. I mean, I, I really did like math and science, but I also okay. loved English and art history and psychology. And I just wanted to explore and study a lot of different subjects. So that's why I did that. And um, it's good for, you know, your listeners and everyone to know that you can do that you can have these interests and still be a doctor you know <laughs> and there are there were actually a, there were a lot of other pre-meds I mean it wasn't I'm sure as many as in your bio um, school and education but there were a lot of people who were, who were pre-med at my college who wanted to try other things and um, so you're able to go to a small liberal arts college we had great science and biochemistry histology physics organic chemistry teachers yeah. as well <laughs> you remember come those? on man but every time you say that name, it's got to leave some kind of like gastric ulcer in you when you hear organic chemistry, you know? That's right. But but what's interesting and, um, you know, from the bio you read earlier that I, that I hadn't included yet that we'll talk about now is, you know, the first two years of college and then I did become, I, I enjoyed, I studied everything and I did become um, interested in pre-med. So I was pre-med my first two years of college, but then I just really wanted to study abroad. I wanted to oh. study abroad for a semester. And if you did that, as maybe um, some of your listeners know, it, it's pretty difficult to do that, get all your pre-meds done and still graduate in four years. So I just, that's when I decided I wasn't going to graduate um, with all my pre-med requirements. I, d I ended up studying abroad. I studied abroad in London and it oh. was fabulous. I was there for a semester, cool. UCL, University College London. I studied art history and psychology. And then I did the classic, you know, American backpacking Eurail trip throughout Europe um, <laughs> the summer 
after and my little brother is a year below me in school so he yeah. was studying abroad the next semester so we overlapped in the summer and we traveled Europe for summer and it was such a great experience and I encourage you know anyone who can do that it's just really an amazing experience to travel the world and meet people from all different backgrounds and sure. during that we went to Switzerland and I fell in love with Switzerland I just loved okay. it it's a beautiful country <laughs> I like the mountains you know they have the French speaking part the German speaking yep. part the Italian speaking part so during that trip I really um, fell in love with Switzerland. So then I went back to college and I finished my senior year. I graduated um, with my major with psychology. <laughs> and then I found an ad in our career center. Another great thing about small liberal arts is yeah. you, know, you get to know everyone, they get to know you. And people knew I was looking for a job abroad. There was an ad in our career center, anyone with experience in admissions, do you want to come work in an American boarding school in Switzerland? And okay. that was exactly where I wanted to be. <laughs> and I was, you know, I did the interviews for yeah. college and the tours for interested students. So I moved to Switzerland, Dr. Raj, and I lived there for three years. And Shut it, the front door. <laughs> Wait a minute, wait, wait, wait. Just stop for a second. So let me get this straight. So you didn't you didn't take the MCATs. You're nope. like you started liberal arts, you graduated yep. psychology, you know what I mean? Yep. You, you dabbled in pre-med. Yeah. So I mean, I gotta tell you, I love your free spirit. You know, I, I feel like you're not even gonna stay at USC that long. We're like another stepping stone in your you know, or notching your belt for around the world. Yeah, I'm hoping a lot of your <laughs> listeners can relate. I mean, you That's know, awesome, man. I, I was able to be pre-med. It's just I wasn't ready yet. You know, I wanted to sort of experience other things. And it was great. I lived at an American boarding school in Switzerland. For I worked three for three years. For three years. It was wow. only supposed to be for a year, but I loved it so much and it worked out. And I so I, I, they asked me to stay. So I stayed. Okay. I worked um, in the admissions office. That was such an amazing experience, Raj. I, there were, so it was an American boarding school, yeah. high school. So grades nine through 12. Okay. And just like the curriculum we have here, but it was in Switzerland. And about a third of the students were American expats living abroad. Sure. And uh, they, you know, th they wanted their kids to go to a U.S. high school. And then the rest of the students were from about 40 different countries, you know, Africa, Asia, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, you know, Eastern Europe, Western Europe, all over the place, South America. And it was, again, amazing just to learn about other cultures, live with students from all over the world, meet their parents. And when they came to tour, it was such a great experience. And um, the whole goal was these students wanted to have a U.S. high school diploma because it, it is a bit easier to get into university in the states which was their ultimate goal okay. if you have you don't need it but it's easier to get into university in the states if you have a u.s diploma so gotcha. um, that was the point and it was so great i mean i lived at the school um, i ate at the school so any money i made um <laughs> in addition you know after my work was to travel so i was at the pyramids in egypt new year's eve 2000 wow <laughs> The reason I wanted to bring it up is yeah. I, it really these experiences have really helped me become an excellent physician. I mean, I'm able, you know, you and I get along well. Um, I'm sure you've had a lot of great experiences, I can tell, too, because these experiences help you get along with everybody, you know, people from all backgrounds. It really helps me with my yeah. patients. You know, I know a little Spanish, a little French, a little German, oh. okay. you know, not not great. But, you know, when you know and you try, it really helps um, the physician patient relationship and they feel more comfortable, you know, knowing that you have a, a bit 
bit of an idea maybe of where they're coming from. So it was a great experience. And then probably what you're going to ask me is how did I end up here? <laughs> after well, there's, so, there's so many parts to your story. Let me, let me just say, <laughs> say one thing, then go to, we'll talk about your, your stop in Philadelphia, which is going to be med school. But no, I agree with you. I think that for my listeners, I do echo what, you know, Dr. Lynn said, which is, being a great doctor is not about what you can memorize and how you can regurgitate information. It really is connecting with people. And right. I think that you're right. I think me and you are good buds because we've experienced so much. We just know how to relate and just be cool to each other. You know what I mean? Right. And that is That's a skill. Exactly. You don't, you don't take a class to do that. You don't get graded on it. So really that was, a, that was an awesome tip, dude. <laughs> but, um, so yeah, you, you. you decided like, Hey, maybe I should take the MCAT. You know, maybe <laughs> I shouldn't be like the, uh, the, the rogue daughter or son, you know, and not go to med school. So, um, you're in, you're in, you're in med school now you're in Jefferson or really another prestigious place. You know what I mean? What yep. was your, uh, what was your best memory of med school? And what was the hardest part of med school that you could tell my listeners about that maybe you could do over, or maybe you could warn people about? Yeah, great. So my 360 is, yeah, I've, I knew I was interested in medicine overall. So I wanted to come back to the States. I did a post-bac program then, uh, Bryn Mawr, Pennsylvania. That's a, another small liberal arts school. Mm -hmm. And that's where I finished um, all my pre-med. So that was a year course. Um, highly recommended. It was great. And that's when that I took my MCAT. And since it was so close to Philly, that's how I ended up then okay. um, at uh, Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia. It, it, it has since changed its name to Sydney Kimmel Medical Center. Oh, I mean, it just, just in the past. My comment. I didn't even know that. Yeah. You know, just in the past few years, how can okay. you change the name of a founding father? I don't yeah. know, but you know, donors. So, um, so like, what the hell is going on? Yeah, so some people, some of your listeners may be yeah. there or know um, of it by that name. So then that's how I ended up in Philly. So probably to answer your question, the hardest part was really making this change of living abroad and living in Europe to coming back and in one year finishing all my pre-meds. I mean, I had yeah. courses and labs every day and taking the MCAT, you know, all in one year. <laughs> so it was a bit of a lifestyle change, but, but I knew that's what I wanted to do. Um, and there were a lot of like-minded people at these programs. So if anyone else is listening, interested, I, I highly recommend it because you can have these other experiences that'll help you in your future. Then you come back with people who've done other things and then all of a sudden very focused and trying to finish their pre-med. So, so it was a hard year, but a great experience. And then Jefferson Medical School. Medical school in Philly was great. You know, now that I'm in Los Angeles, it was very different. You know, it is one of the first medical schools in the country. It, it's very traditional. You know, there were definitely no jeans or, you know, Birkenstock wearing. <laughs> and I'm not saying we wear Birkenstocks now, but I do see some jeans here and there. But, you know, Jefferson was definitely a tie and, um, you know, sh shirt and tie um, type of place. Um it was great. I mean, living in one of the oldest cities in America, another city that I hadn't experienced yet, and meeting students from everywhere. I was a bit older than everybody because of what we've <laughs> talked about, um, but, it, but it was really great. And the advice I have, I think, um, from what you've heard so far is it's okay to, you know, explore your interests uh, before you get to med school. And if anything, it really helped me focus. By the time I was at med school, I knew this is what I wanted to do. No, nice. let me, just, before you answer more, like, so yeah. for the admissions part of it, mm -hmm. did, did it help you that you took a break from college before going to med school? Because, you know, when I do a lot of, you know, how to get the residency you want 
you know, talks to people, I'm always like, don't take big breaks. You know what I mean? You know, mm-hmm. knock out your exams in, uh, in order. So did, it, did uh, the admissions committee to many med schools like that part of your resume CV? They did. And I think they, I think they really did. And now I'm actually an interviewer here at USC and I love it <laughs> when I hear that people had these other experiences, uh, you know, cause the people who are applying to med school, everyone's smart, right. And everyone can yeah, do the they work. Are. And they're all passionate. Um, but now nowadays, I think schools are, you know, interested and in looking for someone who has tried something different just to bring kind of a different perspective. So I know what you're saying. Schools are always going to ask why, why you break? have this break. Here. Where's this gap? Where's yeah, this gap? <laughs> right. They're going to ask why. But if you have a reason, you know, such as I did or, or an awesome experience that you had, they love to hear it. And it actually makes That's you cool. stand out, um, which is great. Yeah. No, totally. So answer me. So, I mean, answer this. So in med school, what was the, uh, what was the, what was your hardest subject? What did you kind of stink at? You had to be, you had to stink at something. You know, let's be honest. What was the hardest one for you mm-hmm. in med school? Probably biochemistry, I think. All right. At least you're honest now. I like that. Yeah. Biochemistry is a toughie. You have to know all these enzymes. Is it pyruvate dehydrogenase? Was that the Krebs cycle? I don't know. Exactly. (laughs) And I know you're an excellent teacher um, of it. And yeah, I think, yeah, because, you know, you get into the details. A lot of the words sound the same. And it's a lot of memorization. Yeah. So I think that was probably my hardest. And um, what I I really enjoyed um, were the clinical rotations. Right? Oh, yeah, that's where your personality shines through, where you have the difficult, you know, and in rewarding um, experiences with the patients. So I think the clinical rotations were my favorite by far. For so, this, this is a good setup for my next question. This is good. So <laughs> I mean, you're extroverted, you can't stay in one place. And <laughs> you just finished med school, and you got to pick the residency. So why does Dr. Lin? <laughs> Pick a residency that makes you sit (laughs) in a dark room the rest of your life. Can you please answer that? (laughs) Excellent question that I I have all have asked myself as well. (laughs) Yeah, very good question. You know, I've really enjoyed a lot, uh, almost everything in medical school. I've really enjoyed family med because I really enjoyed patients of all ages, right? Mm -hmm. I love kids. I really love older adults as well. I grew up with all of my grandparents. And so that's one thing I really loved. Okay. I really loved OB-GYN. I love delivering babies. I just thought it was so fun. And it's really a happy um, specialty because everyone's, yeah. you know, for the most part, so happy, you know, their baby. <laughs> when, when the baby is delivered safely. Yeah. <laughs> How could you not? Yeah, exactly. I know what you're saying. Yeah. There's are, there are challenges sometimes, yep, but overall yep. it was just such a rewarding mm-hmm. experience. And so the very good question, I think, and the thing that helped me a lot is that my father was a radiologist, you know, and he okay. always loved his job. I knew about radiology because of him. I used to go to, a, you know, go to his office. I still remember he always had Oreos in his drawers, you know, <laughs> I can picture the office. I remember getting, you know, lost in the elevator once. <laughs> honestly, as a lot of your listeners will probably relate to, we don't have a lot of experience, uh, um, a lot of exposure to radiology as a med student. So honestly, without having a family member, you know, as a radiologist, it may, it may have been different, honestly. But the reason why is he just loved his job so much. I'd never met anyone who was so happy to go to work every day. That's and, cool. 
you know, no, wasn't complaining. He really was passionate about it. He did research. I met a lot of his colleagues. They would come over for dinner. So I think that's what fired me up about it. And the good thing about radiology, and I definitely want your listeners to know this because we are always looking to recruit more radiologists <laughs> and more diverse <laughs> in backgrounds and personality radiologists. Is radiology really is no longer, you know, the, the dark room basement, you know. Um, now in our practice at USC, we also do procedures. So that's how I still am able to see patients. I do CT guided lung biopsies and drainages, like you mentioned. So um, I really enjoy it because I love. I always loved anatomy. That was my favorite course. Um, <laughs> it had to be in med school. In first mean, you guys year. are kicked butt in anatomy, dude. Yeah. I mean, it was difficult, but I just, uh, I was always fascinated by it. And radiology obviously is a lot of anatomy. Um, I have to say I did like physics as well. So um, that is what, you right. know, a lot of physics and radiology. There is. You know, I, I did my residency um, in, I met my husband in Philly and then he's from Los okay. Angeles. So that's how we ended up here in Los Angeles. And really, as soon as I came to USC, and uh, I'm interested in your thoughts on this too, I just knew I wanted to stay. I mean, the people were, you know, relatively young, uh, just, you know, in radiology, it kind of, you know, people stay a long time, right? And so <laughs> tends to be, you know, older. And so that was some of my experience in radiology was, you know, a little bit older, but then you come to USC and everyone is fairly young. Everyone is really enthusiastic and they're fun and nice like you yep. and I, if, <laughs> if we do say so ourselves. And I just knew it just fit with my personality um, right away. So I know what you're saying, you know, radiology kind of has this reputation, but it's really changing. And now, um, you know, our department, we relatively have a lot of female residents and faculty compared to a lot of uh, radiology departments. And, you know, it's still not 50-50. I wish it were. And so that's why I'm going to try to, you know, hopefully recruit some people. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> talking to you. Um, but it is really a step in the right direction. So um, I'm still able to teach and talk. That helps with my um, personality. And I love the subject matter. And I always loved the lungs. It was actually uh, between this and pulmonary, believe it or not. We would have been yeah. colleagues either way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I could see us giving knuckles to each other and being fellow pulmonologists. I think you've been a great pulmonologist, you know. <laughs> but so... So when you radiology in itself, even though that's the first step, you got to pick your residency, you know, you, you pick internal medicine or OB-GYN or surgery, but radiology is very, very broad. So of all the different body parts, MSK, the central nervous system, I mean, it, I mean, did you have this underlying passion for lung and heart I mean more lung? Mm -hmm. it was, was it because of your dad? Was your dad kind of a lung guy? You yeah, know? it was. He was. I do the exact same thing he does. He was also a thoracic radiologist. And so I think that's sort of what... Uh, that's just what I knew. So the very first thing I was thinking in radiology residency was always that I would go into chest radiology, but I was, because that's what I knew, but I was open, you know, like you say, yeah. there's so many um, fields within fellowships and specialties within radiology. You can do pediatric neuro yeah. MSK um, abdomen breast, women's imaging, you know, they're an interventional, there's so many different things. And so chest is originally what, uh, because, because of my dad, but also in med school, I really did love the respiratory course. I just love the lungs because there's um, all the different infections really fascinated me. I loved how multidisciplinary it was. I mean, a lot of um, 
you know, specialties in radiology are, but especially, you know, I, I remember my dad would always work closely with pathologists and yeah. oncologists and surgeons. And I think it really is the pathophys um, that ultimately is what made my decision. And then coming to USC, the fellowship, um, cardiothoracic fellowship, we do both diagnostic, you know, reading CTs and x-rays, but it's also half interventional. So that's, um, you know, that that's pretty unique. Uh, you know, yeah. not all of um, chest fellowships, you also do procedures. Some you do, but not all. So um, that's really what, what interested me. So on that note, I mean, so are you like the favorite son, daughter of the family? I mean, your dad must <laughs> love you. Like, you know, I made the spitting image who, you know, I could pass the baton to, you know, chest radiologist. So does he give you the biggest hug in the whole world when you see him all the time? You know, honestly, I think it was a bit of a shock because you heard, (laughs) well, just because of um, my circuitous course of getting here, you know, I don't think he pinned me down as the one who was going to end up (laughs) doing exactly what he did when I was gallivanting in Europe at the Tour de France, you know, (laughs) so... Uh, I think he he is very proud. I know that yeah. for sure. Um, and he and I go to the Society of Thoracic Radiology meetings together. How cute okay. is this? That is so he's awesome. Now, yeah, he's now retired, uh, but he comes um, to oh. the meeting and he listens to me give talks. And oh, we made man. it in the newsletter once. I don't think there's been that many father-daughter pairs. And he's actually one of the founding members of the, the Society of Thoracic Radiology. So that, they like to have awesome. him there. And um, it, it's just been really really great and added bonus to the career. Um, but there are four of us kids, so I definitely can't, um, can't say I'm the favorite. <laughs> well, let me, just, let me just tell you on, on a little side note. So, you know, my mom and dad, they're retired. My mom's a nurse. My dad's not in medicine. And they used to co travel the country to watch me lecture for like Kaplan and other. I got your back. It's the best feeling in the whole world. Right. You look out in the audience and you see your folks there. It, yeah. It's something that's really, really, really special. Yeah. But let me let me talk about interventional. So, I mean, after all the training, you know what I mean? Did you not feel complete just by looking at films? Did you have to stick needles in people? I mean, <laughs> I mean did, what, 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 what was that feeling? You're like, you know what? I, I just can't only look at images. What, pro- yeah. what it wants you, what promoted you, what encouraged you to go into interventional radiology? Yeah. I like the challenge, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think number one, you know, within, um, within radiology, you know, once I decided between radiology and pulmonary, you know, medicine, so I mm-hmm. decided radiology then, you know, you're right within radiology. How did I decide? So I told you how I got interested in chess, but mm-hmm. With my personality, I realized I needed to do procedures because okay. that's how I was able to see patients. You know, uh, I mean, in I med see. school, yep. you, you know, the clinical rotations, like I talked about, I just really love that um, patient, you know, physician relationship. It's just a real special thing, right? You know, trying yeah. to. No, help people make them feel comfortable and ease their anxiety, especially when they're when they're coming to me for <laughs> procedures. So within radiology residency, I really enjoyed, um, it, you know, the intervention, the doing the procedures because I could see patients. I also really enjoyed women's imaging. I know we'll talk a little bit about yeah, you know, yeah, women no, in medicine there, also, but also because there are a lot of procedures. There's a lot of biopsies, you know, involved with breast biopsies and yep. breast imaging. Um, so I think the main reason is that's how I was able to see patients and, you know, talk <laughs> basically <laughs> at work. But also I do love the challenge. I've always liked to work with my hands. And honestly, our fellowship directors and um, chest radiologists
audiology staff here are, were such great teachers that they really made me enjoy doing the lung biopsies. I mean, they can be scary because a risk is a collapsed oh, yeah. lung. Yeah. Obviously, you know that. Yeah, so it no takes kidding. a lot of skill, um, but I just enjoy it mostly um, to see the patients and then really just the satisfaction of helping them get a diagnosis to help move, move their treatment forward. And I got to tell you, personally speaking, you know, being a pulmonologist, I love all you guys and gals in interventional because, you know, when I'm having these consults and it, the, the, the issue is tissue, and I'm like, dude, I can't get this. You know <laughs> what? Let's call interventional radiology. <laughs> Let them help us out. And yep. I love. it's so nice to have colleagues that could get those, those places in the lung that are not that safe and help us out. So you guys yep. and gals are Awesome. We're definitely a good team between our two <laughs> departments. Yeah. So, hey, let me let me go into. Uh, so I got some. Uh, I wanted to uh, switch the gears on this conversation to a very okay. important topic, which is lung cancer screening. Yeah. And you know, I actually uh, kind of uh, touched base with some of the medical students that followed the podcast. Thank you very much. And they asked some questions because I said we're going to have an awesome interventional radiologist here. Um, so here are some lung cancer screening, and I think this is important. You know because. Lung cancer screening, you know, tends to go under the radar sometimes, you know, rightly so breast, cervical, colon, always seems to take the metal stand for the gold, silver, and bronze. And people forget we do screen for lung cancer in the United States. So my first question is, and these are going to be questions that students gave to me. So what is lung cancer screening and how do we do it? Excellent. So that is excellent question. So... Another answer to your question of why I chose chest when I was in residency is lung cancer screening started while I was a resident. So that was another very hot topic, you know, so it's been almost 10 years um, that it's been around. So what is it? Okay. So lung cancer is by far the leading cause of cancer death among both men and women, and it makes up about 25% of all cancer deaths. I mean, it's a really bad diagnosis. Yes. And this was interesting for me to learn, but each year more people die of lung cancer than of colon, breast, and prostate cancers combined. Oh I mean, God. think of that. Probably, you know, unfortunately, a lot of us know someone who has colon, breast, or prostate, and just yep. think, you know, lung is even more common than that. And plus, it's uh, very deadly. You know, it, yeah. it's a very serious cancer. So, um, you know, we as physicians, we screen for those other three cancers that I mentioned. You know, we do fecal occult blood tests for colon cancer. Yep. Mammograms are fairly easy and inexpensive ways to screen for breast cancer. And then prostate cancer, you know, we have a blood test, right, that we can yep. um, screen. So those are pretty easy to screen for. But the problem with lung is it's a bit more difficult to screen for lung cancer, which is, I think, why it took so long for it to come around. Because there way we screen for lung cancer is we have to do it by CT, okay? So to find these really small nodules, you can get chest x-rays, you know, our listeners know um, about chest x-rays, but really small, a lot of small lung nodules, you just can't see by x-ray. So really the biggest screening tool for lung cancer screening is CT. Well, the, the problem with that is CTs are much more expensive, right, than blood tests or, you know, fecal occult tests and even mammograms, you know, CTs are a lot more expensive than, you know, the, the x-rays that the mammograms are. So that's why, so I told you why we're doing it in terms of the risk factors, why it's a need, you know, within our population. And then 
the reason of the delay was probably to get, um, you know, insurance companies and everybody behind paying for CTs for these patients. Well, let me ask you this. Mm -hmm. I mean, when we ask you to how we do it, so yep. I, you may have answered it because, you know, in medical school, when you teach yeah. residents and interns, imaging the lung, we always I mean, why not a chest x-ray? You know what I mean? Right. Shortness of breath, I say chest x-ray. You know yeah, what I mean? You always start there. with a chest x-ray, yeah. Even you, thanks for getting my back on that. So my question is, I mean, was it just not detailed enough getting a chest x-ray? Because you're focusing on, yes, expense, but radiation too by screening with a CT. Yeah. So it, what was the main reason why we chose CT? Was it because it just picks up, it's more sensitive of a museum? Yeah, right it can pick up smaller nodules. You're right, Dr. Raj, for any chest pathology, you should always start with a chest x-ray. And, and we definitely believe that, you yeah. know, in chest radiology as well, right? Because that's the way you can tell, you know, if someone is short of breath, it could be many things. It could yep. be fluid on the lungs, it could be infection. So you mm -hmm. should always start with a chest x-ray because it's easy, fast, and not a lot of radiation. So that's yeah. an excellent point. But the reason the screening has to be CT, and there were you know huge national lung cancer screening trials that started about 10 years ago, and they yeah. a lot of studies have looked at x-ray versus CT, and they found you know using data that CTs really do pick up smaller cancerous nodules faster and more okay. easily than x-ray. So there were big studies on this. So you're right, radi radiation is um, is an issue, which is, another, you know, not only are CTs expensive, but they're also more radiation. But that's why they did these big studies to show why the CTs are needed. And it's because they pick up these small cancers that x-rays cannot. So then now what we do is we came up with a low-dose CT protocol. So what that means is for lung cancer screening, we give a little bit less radiation for these CTs. Hmm. So okay. why don't we do that with everybody? Well, why did you read my mind? Why don't we just do that? <laughs> <laughs> always click low dose for everything. Then. Yeah. And the reason for that is because it doesn't pick up the soft tissues very well. And by oh, that, really? I mean like really? lymph nodes or, you know, if you have an aneurysm of your aorta or a lymph node, you know, if that's what you're worried about for a patient, you need to get a regular CT because you can see soft tissues better. Okay. But if you're just looking at the lungs, you know, and as we all know, lungs are mostly air, you yeah. don't need a lot of radiation um, to pick okay. up nodules. So nice. now, after all this, the American Cancer Society recommends annual lung cancer screening with a low-dose CT scan, which we have here and almost, you know, all hospitals do now, um, for certain people at higher risk for lung cancer who meet the following conditions. And I'll go over that with you. So we do low-dose CT, you know, okay. so we try to give as low-dose as possible. And it's so, uh, and then we only scan, scan, screen high risk people. And this is true, you know, for like colon cancer as well. You start at a certain age. It's not yeah. that you start, you know, it's not that you screen everybody. So the reason we um, um, choose the high risk people again is because of, you know, radiation. You don't want to start, you know, screening at age 10, right? Because then these <laughs> patients are going to be getting a lot of radiation. But also studies have been shown, you know, around what age um, should you start screening. So after all these national lung cancer screening trials, which you can look up, the NLSTs, what we decided is we're going to scan these patients with low-dose CT scans and see if they qualify. So you qualify if you're age 55 to 74 years old. 
Now, is, is it now? I got. I got to. I got to step it up a little bit. Now, yep. is it seventy four or is it seventy nine? Okay, so very good question. I don't want to be. I don't want to be that weird host that's putting the the guest <laughs> on the spot. But can, can you? Can you? I didn't know what. No, no you're right. There, there's um, a, there's so the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force. So what Dr. Raj is saying, we used to screen, um, screen up to age um, 74, but now, right now, we're in progress by the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force to up the age limit. You're right. Um, because, you know, 74, that's pretty young. 74 yeah. is the new 54, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> no, well but, so not only that, but really there's been studies to show that we should screen longer. So actually, you're right. I'm going to mention the most recent. They're not totally fully accepted yet. They're in process of being okay. accepted. Yep. Yep. But it's low-dose-CT now, the, the, the newest ones in pro progress. In adults mm -hmm. age 50 to 80, okay. you have a 20-pack year smoking history who mm -hmm. currently smoke or who have quit within the past 15 years. Gotcha. So that's important. So even though patients have um, quit, you should still... Um, if they have this 20 pack year smoking history, which is a lot of his, uh, you know, high amount of smoking, you yeah. should still screen them even if they've quit um, within the past 15 years. And that's it. Then screening should be discontinued once a person has not smoked for more than 15 years or develops a health problem that limits life expectancy, or they're going to be getting some other sort of follow up for something else. So then we stop screening. Or, but really, what you should remember I love this banter. Or I'm going to throw one more in there. Okay. Yeah. Is, you know, in broad strokes, you know what I yeah. mean? The key thing about these lung cancers, you want to have a stage, it's a lower stage, you know what I mean? When I mean yeah. lower staging, that something where you can go for cure and cure is going to be surgery most of the time. So if you're not a surgical candidate, wouldn't it be reasonable to say maybe we will stop screening if you're not going to accept surgery or can't go through surgery? Uh, is that too mean of a statement or does it make sense? Um, no. So I know what you're saying. Um, why screen if you're not going to be able to go surgery? Well, the good thing is now, and yep. especially here at USC, is there's a lot of advancements in chemo and also radiation therapy. Mm -hmm. So even if they aren't good surgical candidates, there now there's, there, there's more treatments for these patients as well. So we do okay. do this at USC that if they can't have surgery, well, at least we can radiate this area. Um, All right. So I buy that. <laughs> so that's why we're sticking to it for now. But yeah, that, that's a good point. So here, here's another great question. So I mean, you already stole the last question, which was who should be screened. So we're going to go to the next one. So oh. <laughs> one of, I mean, you're just on your A game today. So one of the med medical students asked, uh, for lung cancer screening, does it matter if the patient has symptoms? So Ooh, I kind of like that because I guess if they're coughing he wasn't specific about what symptoms or if they had weight loss. Does that change what we're doing or no? Yes. Yeah. That's a very good question because it comes up all the time. Very, very good question. So it is written in the literature that, you know, if the patient has symptoms, then it's not necessarily lung, their lung cancer screening. They don't necessarily qualify. So you're right. It depends what they mean by symptoms. And the reason for that is if they have symptoms, and usually that means, you know, cough or extreme shortness of breath or, you know, coughing up blood, maybe something <laughs> oh, like no. that. Yeah. The reason why that 
what we're saying is then those people should probably get a regular CT, you know, and probably one with intravenous contrast, which is okay. a whole other story. But the reason if they have symptoms, they should get probably a little bit more detailed study because there might be something else going on, right? It might be yeah. another type of pneumonia or, or some other problem that you need a little more in-depth evaluation. But the thing is, is sometimes it's difficult because a lot of patients who smoke, you know, this much, it's so much that they qualify for lung cancer yeah. screening, sort of have chronic symptoms, you know, so, like you know, cough, sort of have this little, you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Like a mild chronic cough. Okay. So it's a very good question. I think the question is what type of symptoms if they have, you know, chronic cough for 10 years, well, yeah, the, those people still qualify for lung cancer screening because it's kind of their baseline. But if they have some new symptom, yeah, like coughing up blood or something like that, then we wouldn't necessarily do a screening study. We'd do a more detailed full CT on those patients. So here's, here's a tough one. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to like, uh, trying to get the answer before reading it out loud to you. So <laughs> um, I guess probably did their studying about what the screening was. So the question is, uh, I have a patient who's one of the high risk groups, I guess, you know, the risk factors that you're talking about, yep. but have been diagnosed with a cancer in the past. Is low dose CT lung cancer screening still the right answer for those patients? Yeah, that's a very good question. So usually typical lung cancer screening is not if they, you know, if they have a prior cancer, they don't necessarily qualify. And the reason for that is usually that those patients are undergoing some other type of follow-up according to that type of cancer. Do you see what I mean? So Yeah, so, so that, that was a good, that was a good question. It was. Yeah. Yeah. The, <laughs> yeah no, that was a great question right there. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Cause what I'm trying to say is, you know, yeah. I don't, it depends what type of cancer that patient has, but let's say that patient had, you know, colon okay. cancer. Yeah. Well, they're probably, you know, they probably get depending on, you know, what the stage was and what happens, mm -hmm. they're probably getting follow-up scans anyway. Cause they, they look for metastases in the lungs for different types of cancer. So usually patients who have cancer in the past are still on some type of follow-up you know, okay. imaging for that particular cancer. So then we don't want to do double, you know, yeah, because we that can pick 100 up. Sense. Yeah, oh. yeah. So that was a great question. It comes up all the time. I want to give that, you know what, I didn't write down all the, the names of who sent in the stuff. I, that, that's, that's worthy of getting like a free book or something right there. That was a good yeah, question. That, that yeah, that student's thinking. Yeah. <laughs> so here, here's a good one. Um, and you didn't answer it yet. So for lung cancer screening, do they have to get a screening exam every year? Yep. It's every year. And mm -hmm. um, up until age 80 is what, you know, the new the new guidelines are saying. And, you know, so I am the director of the lung cancer screening program here at USC. Okay. We have a great research team and they, you know, keep good. We have a great database that they keep um, track of. So they will contact the patients every year. Um, it's hard, right? I mean, yeah, no, it's super yeah, hard. Yeah. Again, and it's hard for patients. You know, again, CTs are not as easy as some of those other screening tests for other cancers, you know, so, um, you know, sometimes patients won't show up every year um, exactly when they, you know, to the day, but, you know, as long as we can get them back, you know, <laughs> at least within the month or two or get them at all, um, it's great. And we have picked up a lot of can. Uh, well, you know, we've been doing this for maybe about five years. We've picked up about 
11 to 12 lung cancers. I know that doesn't sound like a lot, but I, that's actually, you know, pretty in line with the, with the national findings. But what's okay. really interesting, <laughs> it's another thing we haven't even talked about yet is even though those are the lung cancers we picked up, but the good yeah. thing is we picked them up in an early stage and they were yeah. able to get surgery or, um, radiation or, okay. or chemo, like we talked about and are doing, you know, great. So that's a great thing about screening is you pick it up in an earlier stage. And that's why CT is probably, you know, is better than x-ray, like we talked about. That but the sense. thing is, is what we haven't talked about yet is the well, thing about CT is you're getting a whole evaluation of the chest and the upper part of the abdomen, because kind yeah. of the diaphragms are a little dumb. So we've actually picked up even more incidental cancers, oh. believe it or not, like adrenal glands cancers okay. or maybe renal cancers so this is why um we want to do it every year and we we keep track of all of our patients and uh, we we've really helped people yeah no and this is kind of a good segue to the last couple questions which on this topic which is going to be so how effective is low dose ct at preventing death from lung cancer. So I think they're looking for some, some number crunching. So you were kind of talking about, this is how many we discovered over the last you know, year at USC. So that's consistent with the, the national data. So what are we expecting numbers wise, you know I mean, in preventing death by doing this? So this is a very, very great question and has been <laughs> um, studied, you know, in all these past studies. So here yeah. are the details. So early okay. detection by low dose screening can decrease lung cancer mortality by 14 to 20 percent among high risk populations. So what, what does that mean in numbers? So here's what okay. it me means in numbers. Okay. About 8 million of Americans qualify as high risk for lung cancer and are recommended to receive the annual screening. So of all those guidelines I told you about pack year, smoking history and age, we have about 8 million Americans, you know, and all of America who, who qualify. And so, you know, are all those patients going to get going to get scanned? I mean, we want them to, right? But yeah. Probably not, right? You know, transportation no. is an issue. You know, insurance might be an issue. And, you know, motivation of wanting to get screened. But listen, if we, let's say we screened half of those 8 million, you know, so half of the people who qualify, if half of these high-risk individuals were screened, over 12,000 lung cancer deaths could be prevented. Oh, wow. That's amazing. So that amazing. I hope that answers the question. But they're asking, what is the impact? The impact is really high because smoking is really prevalent as we all know yeah. um, in our country and this is a real need so actually um, you know where are we now about 10 years after since lung cancer screening has started we're doing great we're picking up lower stage we are really saving people's lives and you know extending their lives but what is the real issue now the real issue now is trying to target these 8 million Americans who qualify you know some people just don't even know about yeah. screening I mean that's why I'm so glad you're asking me this no definitely so Really, our goal now in 2021 is to really spread the message about okay. um, who needs to be screened and how you can do it and that it's even out there because so it's, it's really, really raising important. that awareness in, in the public sense. No, that that's awesome. So 
I'm going to ask you uh, two more questions about this, but just to throw a little side note in there, and I don't know, I think you know this, you know, but uh, my dad was diagnosed with lung cancer. You know, Mm -hmm. he never smoked and he had what you guys refer to as adenocarcinoma in situ. And it was discovered because he has uh, CLL, chronic lymphocytic leukemia. They were going to check out some lymph nodes or something for a totally other reason. And they found it like an oops incidentaloma. And because it was such an early stage, they pushed the lobectomy and it got out there. And everything you just said makes sense. You know, I mean, finding incidental cancers and finding yep. it at an early stage and yep. it does save lives. So that's amazing. Yep. I remember meeting them um, in the, in the um, student, cafe, student, uh, <laughs> remember I sat with you yes. guys and we had yes, lunch. Yes, yes. He was there for one of his appointments. They're so yes, sweet. Yes, yes. Yeah. So he, uh, the last question or second to last would be, you know, with any, this is one of my questions, which is, you know, with anything, there's always going to be risks. And I know that there are some risks when you do talk about lung cancer screening. And I mean, I can tell you what I think, but what are some of the risks that you inform your patients before agreeing to do this? Very good. So radiation is a okay. risk, right? Yep. Um, you know, there have been, you know, no definite studies to show like radiation from CTs yep. causes cancer, right? we all know radiation is dangerous from, you know, catastrophes like Chernobyl and things that have happened. Um, But luckily we are able now with our, you know, um, high tech and the advances we've made in our CT scanners to really get the dose really, really low, the radiation dose. So I really think the benefits of lung cancer screening outweigh the low, you know, theoretical risk of radiation and our low dose um, is really low. (laughs) It's true when we say low dose. So I, if it were my family member or myself, I would definitely um, recommend them do it um, and that not to be worried about that radiation part of it. But there are other risks too yeah. that, you're, that you're talking about. And honestly, the biggest risk is finding incidental findings that may or may yeah. not have yeah. caused a problem, right? We all know that, you know, you can find little adrenal, many adrenal nodules are, are benign, right? Mm-hmm. But now the poor patient has to go through this full workup. You know, they may have never known they had it and they would have done fine and nothing. Yeah. But now let's say they undergo a biopsy and they get a complication from a biopsy and it's a benign lesion. So they didn't even need the biopsy. So <laughs> I think that, that even though CT is great because you can really see a lot. That's one of the risks. You can really see a lot and you might find stuff that wouldn't have otherwise caused a problem. So we're really dealing with that with just, you know, continuing to um, decrease, you know, radiation dose, make sure we screen the right people and just, you know, a lot of research studies are, are happening now about all these incidental findings. We're actually part of a large MD Anderson study and I input every single CT we do, we input all the findings. And so there's studies going on now about how many of these, you know, benign um, tumor, incidental tumors of other organs, what's the impact? Like, does it really matter? How many people are we saving? How many people um, are we hurting by doing unnecessary biopsies for benign things? So, So it's a very good point. So I'm glad are- you brought it up. And I, I think it's the anxiety issue. And I think that yeah. I have these people in my, in my lung clinic, the pulmonary clinic, where they just want that CT. And you know that when you yeah. order the CT, because they'll kind of bully me into it because I'm a nice guy, <laughs> I won't make the diagnosis I want, but we'll find an oops, but yeah. I saw a nodule. And now 
the, the frown on their face, the, the tears that are coming out, you know? Yeah. So I'm glad you brought that one up. Now, here's my last question. And then we have to get to a couple more things because we're almost, uh, my dude, we are like those chatty people. It's almost been an hour already. It's Yeah, crazy. yeah, no problem. Okay. Yep. <laughs> but, um, you know, so after they do their, their low-dose CT screen, uh, well, what can they expect on the results? Just explain to me. So they got the, the, the test. Let's say something's positive. What happens? Do you call them up? How does it, what is the next steps for them? Yep, very good. Yep. So our research team will um, send a letter to the ordering doctor, you know, so usually um, the patient's primary care doctor has ordered this study. Mm -hmm. um, so the our team will send a letter to the doctor. And uh, if they aren't able to get, you know, to get a hold of the doctor, they'll send the letter to the patient. And what lung cancer screening does is we give a score called lung RADS, you know, lung dash RADS, R-A-D-S. And it gives, you know, a scoring system. And if you get a lung rads one, that means you have no lung nodules at all in your lungs. If you get a, yeah. If you get a lung rads two, it means you have um, a benign, a benign or small nodule. So six millimeters or less is a lung rads two. And those based on all the data of all the studies we've done in the past um, 10 years, nodules less than six millimeters are really, you know, usually benign. And if they aren't benign, you know, they're so small and slow growing that it's okay to follow those every, once a year. So if you get a lung rads two, it means you have a nodule less than six millimeters and will follow you in a year. If we have a lung rads three, that means a nodule six to eight millimeters. So if the patient has a nodule that's six to eight millimeters on their scan, we'll call them back in six months. So instead of 12 months, it's six months. And the reason for that is, yeah, it's a kind of a big nodule, but still there's a lot of benign, um, even benign pulmonary nodules, like you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And so if it hasn't grown in six months, um, then we're less worried. If it's a nodule greater than a centimeter, that's when we worry. We call it a lung rads four, and that's when we call the patients in for further workup. And that okay. can either be a PET CT, which is another type of study to help us decide if it's malignant or not, um, or the patient will get a biopsy. Yeah. And, and I know for us, we used to do this together. There's like a tumor board where we all meet down and we kind of argue in a nice way, what's the safest, best way, what's the next best step in the management of this patient, because it's very individualized and there's not one plan that fits all patients. So I think that's also important just to throw it out there. Yep. Now, let me ask you that my, I, I threw a, a last minute Raj question. So in your experience doing so much, you know, uh, the lung cancer screening for the smokers out there, do most of your patients who smoke stop after they get the negative screen? So or that's a very, yeah, that, that, that's a very good question. I, have <laughs> I, I gotta know, I gotta know. Yeah, I have to say, I don't really know that, you know, because I'm seeing their scans, you know, um, but I think the question to ask would, would be their primary doctors who follow them up. But one way that I can tell Dr. Raj yeah. is we, we give um, a questionnaire before every screener, you know, just to see how sure. many pack years and maybe sure. patients have new risk factors as the yeah. year goes on, you know. And um, I have to say, I do often see um, the numbers of smokers go down. I do, oh. have, you know, if they yeah. haven't quit totally, they have decreased at least. 
Um, so I think it just depends. You know, some people don't stop. Some people stop cold turkey and some people decrease. So the, but to, to your question, yeah. I'd have to say another part of our program that I didn't mention earlier is um, lung cancer, uh, excuse, excuse me, smoking cessation. Um, so we all, all talk to the doctors and also give the patients resources for smoking cessation. So we really try to do a full, you know, picture, not just the CT, but give them other tools. <laughs> you know what scares me the most is like the person who gets the results. It's it's negative. It's a, it's a benign study, and they're like, yes, you know, know. another year of smoke. That that's what I don't want. So I right. think it's great that you have, you know, a part of your your program that really focuses on. Okay, man, you got to pass, but you got to stop. And here's here's the steps, and here's the, yeah. the tools to help you stop. I think that's important. So I want to make sure we talk about something else. You know, because we're like a little. We're, oh my God, it's been longer than I thought. I'm going to talk about breast cancer screening another time. I know that it's super passionate about you, but I wanted to close up talking about women in medicine, women in radiology, and just kind of ask you in general, I mean, you know, when I was reading your, you know, your CV, I don't know if everyone picked up on it, but that's one of your passions mm -hmm. is about women in medicine and radiology. How did that become a passion for you? And can you also maybe just, you know, go into um, what can you do if you're a woman in uh, med school and deciding where to go and why to go into radiology? I'm so glad that you asked me this because it is a passion of mine. So how I became interested is, you know, it really ties into a lot of the stuff I've always talked about is I really am passionate in, about medicine in general, but I'm not maybe the most, you know, I didn't take the most typical course, right? I, I studied something else. I lived abroad and then I decided to do, to go into medicine. So I really wanted to get the message across to people in general that you can, you know, follow your passions and be your authentic self and still be a doctor <laughs> and still be a great doctor. You don't have to go through the same path that everybody else does, step, 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 you you know, one by one. And I think it helps us become, you know, excellent physicians, like I already said. So that being said, um, I, I feel like my path is unique, but also women in medicine and women leaders in medicine are still lacking, right? Um, if you look in academic centers, you know, you have assistant professors, associate professors and professors, and that's, but you get promoted based on your scholarly activity. You know, there's a bunch of things tied into it. Exactly. Well, if you look, there's very few women full professors. Oh, right? okay. Very yeah. few. And it can't be because there's no women, right? I mean, of course, we all know in med school, you know, there's almost, you know, even more than half women. So where do they all go? You know, so this is what kind of um, sparked my interest in it. And we're all here. But what, what really happens is, um, you know, women have a lot of other duties too, right? You know, whether you start a family or whatever, there's a lot of data showing that women do a lot more of the homework in terms of hours than guys do. Yes. Yeah, even if both um, both um, spouses are working, right? So there's a lot of data. And I so the reason I'm passionate about it is I think um, women leaders are needed. It, helped, it helps to have multiple leadership styles and it helps to create a nice diverse atmosphere and leadership because we have a diverse physician pool, right? So we need this to be reflected in our leadership. And so not only do I feel like um, I... 
I can use my skills based on my background, but also I'm really passionate about just letting people know that you can still be your, an, your authentic self and a woman and succeed in medicine. And how this helped is I started to meet other people like me, right? I started to yeah. go to conferences. Um, so I want to, you know, let um, your women listeners know, and the men too as well, there's a big he for she movement going on um, in medicine too, of how men can support their women colleagues. But really what happened for me is I attended two women in leadership conferences. One is called... Um, the Career Advancement and Leadership Skills for Women in Healthcare run by Harvard Medical School. And the other is Women in Medicine Summit that is um, given by the University of Illinois. And this was really great because it gave a lot of courses about leadership style, motivation, negotiation, mentorship, and just, you know, giving the women the tools they need to succeed. Because traditionally, you know, um, the males were given these tools just because they're a lot more male role models. So I'm just real passionate about becoming a role model for women to show that you, you can do all of these things and, um, and, you know, succeed. So I, I just want to share my, you know, what I've learned at these conferences. So I'm starting a group um, in, um, I'm just starting it small in our department because we have a lot of women residents, fellows and faculty where we're all going to get together once a month. For now, it's by Zoom. We're going to go over an article, you know, maybe about leadership style, maybe about negotiation, maybe about public speaking um, and other practical things too, you know, how to write your bio <laughs> how to network and yep. all of these things because um, I really feel like there are a lot of women out there who would be excellent leaders but maybe didn't have the tools or don't know where to start um, so it's starting out I recommend these two courses for sure and you know in the notes I'd love to give out my email address Dr. Raj and if anyone's oh, interested about learning more or perhaps doing a project together they, they can contact me well say it right now just in case I want to say they get right yeah. now. okay so my email address is Leah Lynn at med.usc.edu so that's l-e-a-h-l-i-n at med.usc.edu well hey i'm not gonna let you questions. go without i got dude i am not not short of questions i just want one more but i really want to dive into you know being a woman in radiology and in medicine so my, my last question almost last question is kind of a spicy one but i think it's worth saying is that you know during your training med school internship residency fellowships um were your best mentors women did other women in your field support you or did you feel you're always competing with them can you comment about that because i know that i interviewed other people who sometimes said it you think women would be the best mentors for other women but sometimes it's not like that yeah. um any comments about that yeah that's a great question um i have to say overall you know radiology hat in the you know in the past and probably still has been a pretty male dominated field so you know when i started out um you know med school and residency most of my mentors you know program directors and everything were men right yeah. and, and they were great i mean they were great um, mentors and they really helped me a lot and but not until i came to usc and i really sort of um alluded to this already there were so many women actually in my in my section you know the chest division we have five women <laughs> out of seven 
<laughs> so we're, we're really lucky. Now you're seeing, and, and they're all amazing. And yeah. So the answer give, to that part of the question, let's is, give a shout out to our, uh, to our, to our girl, Allison, dude. She's yeah, amazing. Dr. Allison Wilcox is, <laughs> I the love chief. her. <laughs> yeah. She's the chief of cardiothoracic imaging and she's about to come the chief of staff of Keck hospital. So Good she has a great yep. mentor. So to answer your question, the when I came here, there were so many women mentors and they have been really helpful and empowering and supportive. And I know what you're saying, um, you know, it could go either way, but I think that's what I'm trying to start this group and kind of cultivate mm -hmm. this culture of amplifying other women, you know, and, and I yeah. notice the people who do it when you're at a meeting, if a woman has a good idea, mention it, say, that's a great idea. And you sort of amplify it. Yeah. And it's just because, you know, it, it hasn't been tradition in the past, you know, um, for often for the, for the women leaders to speak up for whatever reasons. And so now's our time to really start that. And I've noticed in our department and you see in general i really feel like the women physicians are empowering the other women physicians so now's the time to grab hold thing. so that's awesome. why i'm starting it yep yeah and you know i'm gonna put you on the spot again i kind of asked this question because being critical care and i interviewed you know wonderful uh, women critical care doctors on my podcast i think in certain fields in medicine there's kind of like a boys club and i'm not saying it's wrong you know in critical care it's a there's a lot of men in there you know yep. and i kind of feel in radiology you said already there's a lot of men in radiology you know yep do you have any tips for women about how to hold yourself in the air quote boys club there's there certain yep. things you do so you won't get pigeonholed or you know what i mean to make sure you succeed yeah. yeah well i'm glad you say that because that's the thing i struggled with at the beginning is do we really have to act like like guys to succeed <laughs> in a well dominated place and the answer is no you know everyone thinks that originally and that's how a lot of us got through you're right med school and all those hard rotations you know surgery is a classic one but you know, I, I like to think I have, yeah, like an outgoing personality, maybe not the typical for um, even a physician or even a radiologist, right? But yet I have a lot to add. I think it's a good thing, right? Because like I yeah. said, I think we Very really need thing. to diversify our leadership styles. So a lot of these courses I've gone through, we need, we need the guys, right? Because the guys still have the majority of the power, right? At the meetings and the hospital leadership. So really what we need to do, and I'm going to do this with our awesome male residents as well, is we really need um, a strong he for she movement, right? We need to talk yeah. to our guys because a lot of the guys just don't realize, you know, that, um, you know, when they show support for their women colleagues, you know, their women colleagues really need that. Um, even though we all are very independent, <laughs> you know, you and me, Raj, you may not know, you know, I am very independent, outgoing and hardworking and a leader, but I still need your support at meetings because the fact of the matter is um, a lot of people also in administration leadership listen to the guys, right? So if you and I are in a meeting, all right, you're right. And I bring an idea up, it's so helpful for you to be like, yeah, Dr. Lynn's right. That's a great idea and we should do it. So I think really pulling our male colleagues in as team members is really going to help all of, all of us um, just diversify and um, succeed. And our patients will love it to have a more diverse leadership pool, I think. Uh, and, and I could really see you being a good leader, you know, in general for radiology at USC. I think that that's what I admire the most about you. That's why I asked you to be on the podcast because you're the most human person I know. And I don't have to change anything about my personality when I call you. Remember, I just call, remember I call you on Saturdays because I just want to. I need your help. <laughs> 
that's the personality you give off. And that's how you become successful is right. giving off that personality. Yep. We're authentic. Uh, that's how I feel. Authentic. Like well, yep, said. Exactly. well said. Well um, said. So, you know what? You kind of set yourself up for me kind of closing with this. We got to talk about breast cancer. Are you going to be willing to come back so we could do another podcast together? Oh, definitely. This was great. I really appreciate it. Um, and I had fun, of course. Ah, that's awesome. So, Everyone, thank you for joining the Dr. Ron show. I have all her information there. Um, definitely when she gave her email out, I'll put it definitely on the, on the show notes. She means it. Contact her. She is awesome. Thanks again, Dr. Lynn, for everything. And uh, I'll see you around USC soon. Yes. Thanks, Dr. Raj. I had a great time. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. <laughs>